Welcome to the Fierce Hearts Club podcast. I'm Rian. And I'm Ruth. Today, our wonderful guest is Cherie Robinson, who is both a knitwear designer and a black British mum. So Cherie tells us today all about her creativity and the beautiful knitwear designs that she creates and how knitting has been almost kind of a spiritual or um, really meaningful experience to her and helped her through some really difficult times in her life and she also talks to us about how her experience of being a black British knitwear designer how she experienced kind of uh, racism and exclusion when she was a student and talks to us as well about inclusion and how we can all work towards becoming anti-racist together. Just to say as well we have the Fierce Hearts Club events coming up in the autumn. So the first event we have is with Hilary McBride, who's going to be doing a talk for us called Dear Body, I'm Sorry, Can We Be Friends on the 16th of September. You can buy tickets on Eventbrite and check out our website, which is fierceheartsclub.com and you will see all the information you need to buy tickets for this fantastic event. Enjoy it, guys, and thank you for being with the Fierce Hearts Club. Hi, Cherie. Welcome to the Fierce Hearts Club podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Cherie, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, hiya. I'm 31. Sounds weird to say. My birthday happened during lockdown, so uh, it doesn't really feel like it happened. I'm from London. I am a black mum of a nearly two-year-old. And my parents are Caribbean, so my dad's from Barbados and my mum's from Grenada. So yeah, my story. I think today I'd like to talk about being a knitwear designer and uh, how during lockdown I've almost found a new love for my craft mm. in having to slow down and only make things from the materials I have in the house instead of going out and buying new stuff because I've actually got loads of stuff in the house. So yeah, I. I learned to knit at university, which is so weird because my grandma was really close to my grandma, who sadly, she died just before I got pregnant. She was a really good knitter and I never learned from her. My mum and her friends, they also used to do a lot of crocheting and sewing and I can sew and paint and draw and stuff like that, but I never learned how to knit until I went to uni. And I was studying textiles and I loved painting on fabrics and stuff. But yeah, knitting just never came into my sphere of thoughts, if that's a thing. So um, yeah, I first learned how to knit on a machine and it's like a really long machine and it makes a crunching sound as you pull the, like the carriage over. So I learned to knit that way first. And then I went on to hand knitting and I found it so difficult to learn how to hand knit. I just could not get my head around it. I'm not very good with my body. Like, I've got a sister who's a dancer and she is amazing, but I can't learn dance routines. I've never been able to. So I found the process of knitting really difficult to learn. It took me ages. And it's funny because now I teach so many people how to knit. I think struggling through it really helped me to understand how other people might not understand. Um, Yeah, so I got into my uni. I studied textiles. I specialized in knitwear there are three pathways you can do you could do printing knitting or weaving 
so I chose knitting and with knitting I love it because you can really you can almost paint in your knitting like if you're knitting a jumper you could like paint a picture on the jumper and that's the way I used to knit a lot like ombres and lots of sparkly stuff I think also for me knitting and mental health go quite hand in hand yeah sometimes I could knit on my machine and I'd be knitting a maxi dress and it's really long and I'd have to cast on like a hundred needles because I do a lot of work with elastic so you have to cast on a really long amount on the machine and when you cast it off it properly shrinks so yeah knitting like the massive long rows and really really long pieces of fabric I find myself like zoning out and it's almost like a meditation and actually now I'm saying it it's almost like an om the sound of the crunch it's almost like waves you can hear the waves crashing in the knitting machine so um yeah and I, I get to that point where I'm not thinking anymore about what I'm making and that's when I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life I'm supposed to be knitting I'm supposed to be making things and sometimes I'll look at like my cone of yarn and then I'll look at the dress I've made and it's like how did I get this out of this and that feels really important to me and sometimes I think about my daughter that way like how did she come from us like me and my partner how is this happening and it's almost yeah like that creative process parallels being a mum sometimes that's amazing yeah that is really really amazing oh thanks <laughs> so um, that's it, it is just such a fascinating idea what you're talking about there I can really relate to it in some ways as a as a musician and where I lose myself so I mainly direct choirs is in that and when I'm working with singers it's like I no longer exist and yeah you know you have the starting point where it all sounds kind of all over the place or whatever and then when you get to this kind of finishing point where everything is really just I'm going to use the word knitted together because I you know work with voices weaving together and working together and when it does and when you have that kind of it's almost alchemy mm. um, where everyone is really united in what they're doing. There is a kind of mysterious extra element where it is like, hang on, there are 20 people here. How, how have they gone from being 20 individuals to being this one beautiful song? It's like they're more than the sum of their parts. And the same with the knitting, right? You look at the raw materials initially and then you kind of go through that process and then you end up with something really beautiful at the end of it but in the process of making that you were saying that you felt lost in it and it was like meditative and there was like you know the symbols of the ocean and stuff it's just incredible isn't it quite an art form that's really been lost I think and especially with young people I don't know whether you experience this but I don't know besides you I don't know anyone who knits so yeah well I'm in the industry so yeah I do know quite a few people but it's definitely losing like at university they really focus on the machine knitting mm. so even within that the hand knitting is getting a bit lost and some students you could go through the course and learn the basics of hand knitting and never look at it again so there are elements that are definitely being lost but there are a few brands out there that are trying to kind of bring it back 
and I actually did um, an interview with the Black Girl Knit Club. So I've got a friend who I went to university with and she's set up this knit club. I don't know if you know, there was um, like a whole kind of thing on Ravelry where you could literally buy patterns of swastikas and gollywogs and stuff like loads of racist patterns and people were defending the right to have the pattern on the site and then people like me are like well this is really offensive to me and you're making money off something that's so deeply wounding to my grandparents because my grandparents came here on a boat like the Windrush so yeah there was a whole thing big uproar in the crafting community and a hashtag was started it's called diverse nitty so it's a whole thing of black women do knit we're here like my grandma knit but there's not much representation um like you say even in our generation it's not often you see people knitting but how often do you see a black person knitting yeah so yeah my friend set up this uh safe space for black women to come together any women really but it was mainly focused on anyone who feels like they don't fit in um when they're knitting so yeah, I did an interview with her yesterday and it was really good to talk about things that I didn't think about, but yes, kind of yes. were my lived experience of being a knitwear designer in the UK. What kind of racism have you experienced in your industry? But sometimes it's like, well, did I not get that job because I'm not good enough? Or did I not get that job because I don't fit in with this company? You like, you look different. I mean, there are things like with hair, like my hair at the moment, it's an afro and it's like how my hair normally is. But if I was going for job interviews, I would probably straighten it. I was the only black girl on my course for the first two years until my friend joined. She did a gap year. Yeah. And then it ended up being three of us. But this is like a massive London university. I wasn't used to being the only black person in a space and like the only not rich person as well. A lot of people came from private schools and it's that kind of inclusion and exclusion that people aren't doing on purpose but yeah it's a lot of the stuff I faced has been quite institutional right so like not seeing any tutors that looked like me and once I did a project about um Caribbean food and I felt like it was quite lost on the people marking it and I had to explain what it was and explain why it's important like I had to doubly explain my work where someone else could just do work and it's understood so I think things like that it's almost being kind of worn down you get a bit more worn down when you're the only person in the room that looks like you yes and had you encountered that much before was it more specifically you said you were the only black person on your course and actually you weren't that you you weren't used to that kind Mm. of experience I'd say that, but then I went to high school in a part of London that is not very inclusive and it was horrible. Like I'd, I'd be getting the train home from school and like groups of men would shout the N-word at me. But it's almost like the stuff at university level, it was so insidious and in the structure of the institution that it was worse. Because yeah. if someone's shouting the N-word at you on the street, it's like, okay, they're racist and I'm not safe. It's like the overt stuff. I find easier to deal with yeah and I've had that quite a lot in high school but in my primary school it was really really the opposite everybody was from everywhere and we learned about so many cultures and it was so good I really want my daughter to have that kind of a school upbringing because high school is so tough yeah. and like always being the ugly one 
because oh. I didn't have massive boobs and long blonde hair like stuff like yes. that but yeah I think I find the high school stuff easier to deal with which is a bit sad actually yeah getting to a university level and it was a really good um fashion uni I don't really want to say it it's really obvious <laughs> where I went but yeah but they know they've got issues so I've, I've actually while I was on maternity leave I've um studied to become a lecturer so I did my postgrad and whenever the lockdown lifts hopefully I'll go back as a lecturer but they know that there's an issue black students they're not attaining the grades at the same level as other students oh right so that's very black, interesting isn't it yeah a black <clears throat> student could come in and have gotten all A's in their A levels and then mm. not perform in the university and they've realized yeah. something's wrong and a lot of that is representation so um yes yeah so they need more diverse teachers and yeah, hopefully I can be a change, but... It, it sounds, I mean, it sort of makes me think of almost like an experience of gaslighting, mm. you know, where when, it, when it's insidious, it is, it's much harder to call something out. And I can imagine that, you know, if you did try, it's very easy for someone to deny or say, oh, well, or make excuses for, or I guess I wonder how that kind of impacted your mental health, say, or your confidence. I really, really disliked uni. I loved knitting and I loved making stuff, but I didn't really have any friends in my specific knit course. I guess I just went into myself more. Right. But that probably helped me with my work, to be honest. And I just would literally sit with headphones in the whole day and listen to music I like to knit. It's such a funny thing. And it's almost like I didn't contextualise it until I had another black student to talk about it with. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's like I knew something wasn't right, but no one else around me is noticing. So, yeah, it's that gaslighting. It's like, is this happening? Is my feedback like this because of this or am I not good? It's like, but I am good. So, yeah, it's such a strange... Um, yeah, it's a weird place to navigate. And also, speaking of gaslighting, a lot of the kind of Black Lives Matter stuff that's happening at the moment and people on Instagram, it's funny, just the performance of it all. That's also, bit, I've been talking to a lot of my friends, that feels like gaslighting as well. Mm. Like places and spaces that we've not been safe in or things have happened in, hashtagging Black Lives Matters and saying that their policies reflect this it's like we know it doesn't yeah so there's a whole level of that going on just in general so I've had to keep quite um like give myself some distance from Instagram and stuff just to protect myself yes yeah you said your friend that set up this group that was about community for mm. black knitters mm. um, can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so it's called the black girl knit club and it's set up by my friend Simone and her friend Vanessa and they hold knitting groups where we'll all go and learn to knit one thing actually we were on um we're on the BBC at the moment we were on an ident a group of us knitting the same thing at once and to see black girls knitting on the BBC to me I'm like oh, I feel so proud oh, I feel so yeah. proud when it comes up and people text me and they're like was that you it must have been you <laughs> Has it given you a really different experience, like feeling included with people, feeling safe, feeling this is how it should be? I don't know, maybe it's made you feel even more negatively about your uni experience. In a way, it was just like so nice to not have to explain everything. 
we've got different backgrounds. I'm Caribbean and she's African. So we've got different references and backgrounds, but just some of the stuff of just being a black person in London and just knowing you can mention something and then they just know what it is. And it took some of the mental load off. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of, because we met in the postnatal depression support group and there's just this sense of, oh my gosh, like people get you and people understand what it's like and that you, you just have this sense of resonance with people. That's how I felt in the PND support group. And we're not always talking about PND in that group and we're not always identifying with this is postnatal depression, but there's something about being just understood, not judged and amongst people that are just with you. It just makes yeah. a massive difference. Yeah, because I'd find with going to mum groups and stuff with just mums that were happy and fine, it just felt awful. And again, it's like, I think I had fun, did I? But then when I go to a group where everyone is having difficulties and we can be honest about it, I think it's the honesty. Yeah. yeah. Honesty is really important and the authenticity and <clears throat> connection. Oh my goodness, yeah. It's incredibly draining as well, I think, when you are having to put on a front in some kind of way or, or having to protect I yourself. I would say like being a black woman in the UK can be that generally like navigating sometimes you can't be your full self the way I speak I'd have to speak more carefully and you have to think two steps ahead it's like okay I'm, I've got to do this today what hair should I have should I have my hair straight should I have my hair cut if my hair is in braids then people will assume this about me so you're constantly second guessing yeah. and that's why mental health in the black community is really um not good there's so many things I know quite a lot so in my postgrad it was um based on inclusive teaching and learning I looked a lot at race and black men specifically and race in film and tv how they're portrayed mental health stuff came up and there is this sense of mistrust definitely in generations above me of systems and institutions because of things that happened in the past you know things like with the police and yeah anything that's an institution is not necessarily always trusted so health issues aren't yeah. always picked up or it's seen as a sign of weakness or like don't let them know or they'll do this to us but I think yeah. my generation like my sisters and stuff were more open and aware I think for me and my friends like people aren't scared to go and get therapy and help but for my parents and grandparents I don't think that's something they would have done as black people in the UK you know if the people that are looking after you are part of a majority that make you feel unsafe it's not something you'll want to do no so um you're hoping to go back as a lecturer and your postgrad about was it inclusive yeah, so inclusive teaching and learning. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I did a research project and my title was How Can We Mitigate Stereotypes of Black Males When Creating Characters for Film and TV? Mm. And I specifically looked at Top Boy as an example. I looked at Kano, Ashley Walters and Ashley Thomas because all three of them are successful musicians in their real life. But in the show, they're playing gangsters. I did a lot of um, research. From the BFI have a really good book called The Black Star. And it's like a booklet and it's got loads of essays in it about film and TV. And I can't remember the stats now, but I do have them. 
somewhere in here, but it's um, black people are mainly cast in films about, well, slavery, crime, teenagers. So there are some genres that you're more likely to see black people in, specifically black men. And there are some you're less likely to see black people in, and romance, horror, I think sci-fi, but they're yeah. like the least likely ones to see black people in. So I was investigating that and seeing um, what lecturers think they could do within their courses to try and stop students from creating stereotypical characters. As in film students? Yeah, costume design. So designing characters that were quite, yeah, problematic and not realising. Yeah. And then also thinking like, oh, why have the tutors not realised? And I've come in to help mark this work. So it's got past loads of levels. And again, I'm the only black person in the room and I'm like, yeah. how did it get here? How's this happened? Um, so yeah, I was trying to find a way. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh, am I going to, I have to say it, don't I? I'm going to have yeah. to be the one to say it. Yeah, so um, yeah, I was just trying to find a way through research. So I created a booklet and it had lots of statistics and images of the three men I mentioned in their real lives, winning awards, being really successful, wearing suits, and then them in the films with guns, hoodies, and just showing the different portrayals. I presented this book that I made to tutors and lecturers within the university and asked them some interview questions. Mm. And um, from the interview questions, that was then a further intervention that I could use some of the quotes to show how things could change. Are there kind of a few take home points that you think maybe, you know, anyone sort of an employer or anyone working with people should be more aware of essentially? Yeah, definitely. And I didn't expect it. So I was asking quite a lot of questions about race and stuff in film and TV and the questions were quite difficult. Mm. But the question people found hardest to answer when they were white was the question, what ethnicity are you? It threw a lot of people off. And some people admitted, like, no one's ever asked me that before. I guess I'm white English. And I had a, somebody answered, I guess I'm a white English male, but I can't really say that anymore. So there was a lot of that, which I didn't expect at all. I was scared to ask for other questions, but that question, it was one of the first questions. And that was one that people really like, like, oh, it's thinking about who is the other. Yeah. And what questions are they asked that you're not asked? And how does that impact them? I think that's what I would want people to take away because I really didn't expect it because I get asked stuff like that all the time. Mm. Like all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm Caribbean. Like, but maybe it was because I was asking. Maybe that's never happened. Yeah, that's probably quite a distinct role reversal. And I had some quite interesting answers as well to the questions. There was a lot of othering. And I think one of my questions is from looking at all of the data from films and TV I've shown you why do you think black students at the university are having these bigger attainment gaps and not achieving as well there was othering there it's like well I think they they only speak to each other or they have caring responsibilities that other students don't so even after all of the questions and showing all of the evidence the answers ended up still playing into the same issue and as part of my final presentation, I highlighted some of these answers that people gave and like blew them up on the screen. And a tutor asked me, how did you get them to say this? I don't think that people realize anything's wrong mm. with the thought process. And that's the insidious kind of yes. nature of it all. 
there's some fascinating stuff about this kind of thing in um in the guilty feminist book by deborah francis white and, and she talks about this sort of pecking order actually of the hierarchy i guess mm. you know and so white men are at the top and for them there are no descriptions about them they are just the name mm. you know and then second i think is a white woman then it would be a black man then it would be a black woman and she highlights this um talking about looking at patents because there are huge mm. records of patents um in the united states you know it's all been documented and all the documentation goes back quite a long way and so when you look at these descriptions you know there's just a man's name and then it's you know this man black this age all the rest of it you know and the and the descriptions get longer and longer and more extensive the more other the people are you know and in terms of the sort of hierarchy of races and sexes and yeah Grayson Perry's book The Descent of Man is really mm. good and it highlights that as well men are the generic standard that a lot of things are based on even a lot of psychotherapy it actually yeah. is all based on white males as the the norm yeah I think that comes back to the birthing stuff as well because I had a difficult birth and I'd had cancerous cells removed from my cervix a year before I got pregnant and because of that I had incompetent cervix so I had to have a, a stitch while I was pregnant and um, to keep me pregnant and I was put on bed rest but I remember while I was having the cells removed for my um, cervical issues it was a male doctor and I'd had a few biopsies before and he was like so you know it didn't hurt the biopsies you had before it'll be like that and I just burst into tears I was like it hurts so much but I don't think it's a pain he could understand it's a body part he doesn't have but he's telling me it doesn't hurt and I was just crying and the nurse in the room was just like I know if your experience in the world is reflecting your own experience and not any other experiences then then for you that's kind of the whole world and and I think for white men in particular it is and for white women secondarily so yeah just the notion of different experiences or different pain experiences mm. or you know is um if you don't learn it or if you're not experiencing it via other people i mean you do kind of wonder what kind of doctor is completely <laughs> particularly a doctor working in ops and gyny stuff a male doctor you know but actually yeah, yeah the history of all of that is um <laughs> quite deeply misogynistic yeah as well it comes down to I guess just thinking if I haven't experienced it then it doesn't exist you know if it's yeah. not within my perception yeah it isn't happening and I think there's this myth that we're in this post-racial culture and so many people would say I'm not racist of course I'm not racist however we all have unconscious biases we all make assumptions and we make subconscious judgments about people around us all of the time um and we all have a we all have a responsibility in this which means looking at the way our communities are run and looking at the structures around us and institutions but also looking um looking at ourselves and realizing we have a part to play in this and for changing the culture and Part of that is acknowledging that as much as we would say we're not racist, realizing what we say and what we do and the choices we make each day and in each moment are what matters. 
And it's really important to acknowledge that we have made mistakes and we do make mistakes and to accept that we're all, you know, we're all learning about being anti-racist and it's not like the job's done um, and we've got nothing more to do. Yeah, definitely. So I've been seeing a lot of quotes and stuff recently and one that kind of resonated with what you're saying is it's not enough to not be racist, it's to be actively anti-racist. Yeah. That's the difference. I also think that the expression you used, othering, for me is a really, really powerful one because, you know, I, I might think, oh, I'm not racist, but yeah, I definitely other, you know, or how can I be anti-racist? Well, a way of being anti-racist is by not othering and pulling other people up around me. It's really, really important. Yeah, um, definitely. Is there anything, Cherie, that you feel like you'd like to share with the Fierce Hearts Club? Anything that you, you want to add? Anything you want to stress? So any person who feels like they don't belong somewhere or you don't fit in you look different you're not supposed to be here the fact that you're there is resistance so you don't have to always fight or you don't have to always explain yourself to everyone you'll find the people that are right for you and you know the ones that aren't I don't know I think I'm just trying to tell everyone to protect their energy because the world is tough and but to find community where you can and where you feel safe. Thank you so much. Should we play some of your songs then? Yeah. What would you like to play first? I think Weird Kid in the End. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. So I'll play yeah. this and then you can tell us a little bit about why you love this so much. I had no phone, couldn't find my calling. They were trying to draw things, I was doing drawing. Should have done better in class, but it was boring. Daydreaming when teachers are talking. With kid in the ends, there was always one. In my ends, plot the weird kid was me. With kid in the ends. Three. Tell us a little bit about what that means for you. So for me, it's like, oh my God, I, I'm that kid. But I was always that kid. Because I was always like making stuff and yeah, I just didn't ever fit in anywhere. But I think as an adult, I'm like, that was a good thing because all of my experiences led me to where I am now. And um, I think just that line where he just says, I walked past war zones. Growing up in London, some of the things I've seen happen, it's just like, what is going on? Like waiting for the bus after school and just like, there used to be uh, metal detectors at the bus station. The police would like choose people to go through it. And it's like, they're choosing the same type of person all the time. But then on the other hand, some days there would be no police and you'd see like proper fights of like a dog biting someone's leg in the middle of the shopping center. So that walked past war zones just really resonated with me from growing up in London. Um, and just anything that, gives London a voice and anytime I see like London people being successful I'm like oh I'm so proud like just makes me really happy. I've never heard that song before but it yeah it was just all about belonging I was just seeing this belonging where do I belong but also I don't belong in the stereotypes so I feel like I don't belong but I don't belong in these stereotypes that you're trying to put me into as well. Yeah because I'm not like an old lady knitting 
and I'm a mum but I don't feel like I fit in with other mums and at school I didn't really fit in yeah so yeah I think that song is like literally just describing me and the other song you have Car Bomb oh yeah all these songs are from Merkage Dave I love Merkage Dave he just sings about really normal situations but he makes them really like I don't know yeah I just love it cool should we have a little listen yeah again it's like I don't know like the first line of I feel like I'm cracking up it's like yeah me too but it's the vulnerability and the strength coming together just being able to through the me- a medium where people are often like telling everyone how good they are to say actually I'm struggling and this is what happened and I don't think I'm rapping like I'm black enough and I it's that yeah like airing your vulnerabilities I find it really interesting and it really just clicks with me. That video, it's, it's filmed really close to his eyes. Yeah. It's really mesmerising because he's really vulnerable, like looking into his eyes when he's singing that. And then there's one point where he's looking in the mirror and you're just sort of watching, thinking, oh my goodness, what what's going to happen next? That's yeah. Really interesting video. I really love the streets and Mike Skinner as well. And him and Mike Skinner, they do or did club nights together and I can hear the kind of yeah the streets kind of like saying really obvious things but no one else is saying the obvious yeah. thing yeah 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 no I know exactly what you mean it's kind of pointing out the really like sort of the really mundane stuff but really getting to the heart of the sort of truth there and the honesty there without being all clever and yeah fancy with it kind of thing yeah that's it that's like exactly it and that's I think that's what I really want my artwork to be like and I think that's why I really like this kind of music so moving on slightly to a couple of questions what are you thankful for today I'm really thankful for my health at the moment because I I spent so long while I was pregnant being really ill and afterwards and with COVID-19 happening I'm just so grateful that me and my boyfriend and daughter were well and my immediate family are well and I'm also kind of really aware of people close to us that have sadly died and are really struggling with the virus so I'm just really really grateful for my health at the, and my family's health and yeah mm. and what gives you great joy just creating creating words I've got really into embroidery recently because it's like a quick way to get words out mm. anything that I keep writing song lyrics down I've got like a project in my mind I'm gonna embroider lots of little bits of words and what advice in life would you give your younger self? Do you know what I would t- I'd tell my younger self that the Lauren Hill song lyric, don't be a hard rock when you really are a gem, because I spent so long trying to be so strong after the hard things happened, and it wasn't who I was. 
So I think there's a whole load of people that knew me before that didn't really know me. So I think I tell myself to be myself. And even if I'm not being myself, I will come back to myself. That's what I tell me. Because I feel like the me now is the me I was trying to be when I was younger. And I was trying to find her. So I just reassure myself that she's there. I love that. I really love that. Can I say a massive thank you to you, Cherie? You are such an unassuming person and you're so humble, but you are so knowledgeable and you have so much wisdom to share and such yeah. amazing talent. Oh, and you. I know you wouldn't like be the first to put yourself forward, but you have so much to share and you shared so generously today. And yeah. I know whatever you decide to do, I, but it's going to be brilliant and it's going to be, I know it'll be so creative and I'll be really, really successful. Oh, thank you. That means so much. Yeah. No, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I feel very inspired by you. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's so nice to like not talk about baby stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's boring. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and don't forget, we have the first season of our Fierce Hearts Club online speaker event starting in the autumn. Woo! Yay! <laughs> first one. So our very first one is on Wednesday the 16th of September at 8pm UK time where we are being joined by Hilary McBride who is a therapist, a researcher, a writer and the subject of this workshop is body image and learning to love yourself as you are which yeah. I think is something we all really need and um, why are we doing it Rian what are we doing it for so we are doing this to raise money for the charity Together Rising so you may know this as something which Glennon Doyle has co-founded so charity is called Together Rising and it's a grassroots charity it raises money for all kinds of fantastic causes all over the world and um, we've both been super inspired by Glennon Doyle and Abby. And yeah, the work they do is incredible. So we wanted to, to raise money for that brilliant charity. So all the money that uh, are, come from ticket sales will go towards Together Rising and the great work they do. So we hope to see you at the event on 16th of September online, eight o'clock. You can buy tickets on Eventbrite and check out our website, which is fierceheartsclub.com and you will see all the information you need to buy tickets for this fantastic event.